0: Please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9, located on page 979 in your pew Bible. If you'll stand with me as we read God's holy word. This takes place right after the disciples failed to cast out the demon. <clears throat> Let's look at verse uh, 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, To stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm that eats them does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. May God bless this reading of his word. Please have a seat. My wife is currently taking a psychology class through her college. So as you might imagine, I've been heavily diagnosed with everything in our household. And she will be glad, glad to tell you about all that. But it's, uh, it's really interesting looking at addictions in psychology courses. And you can get addicted to not just common things, you can get addicted to some very strange things. There have been rare cases of people who've gotten addicted to eating dirt, not just kids. There have been cases of people getting addicted to going to a tanning salon and getting tanned over and over and over again. There even have been cases where people get addicted to being dumped so that they will get into relationships and then break it off just to get over and over again, that sensation of getting uh, dumped. There's one addiction, however, that pulls in most of us, and I think most of us feel, and that's the addiction To ourselves. I think we all have this. We all crave being praised. We crave getting the glory. We steer the conversations we have right back around to ourselves. And that addiction to self centeredness isn't new. It's not something that's going to go away in the next generation or that we're going to fix overnight. But the good news is that the gospel frees us from this addiction that we have to ourselves so that we can be great men and women. But ask yourself this, what is a great person in God's eyes? What is a great person in God's eyes? It's not what the world thinks, which is how many people follow you on Facebook or how many awards or accolades you might get at a banquet. What God thinks is is radically different. In Mark 9 here, as we close out the chapter, we see Jesus' followers struggling with this question, struggling with a desire to be great. To be great men. And we see how Jesus redefines exactly what that means. Following the messy failure of his followers last week, Jesus takes some time away from the crowd so that he can pour some teaching and some discipleship into his followers. He once again gives a prophecy of how he's going to have to serve people by going through death and resurrection. But that topic is so unsettling, so uncomfortable that the disciples decide they're not going to pursue it. Instead, as they're traveling, they get into an argument, perhaps a quintessential guy argument. Which one of us is the best one? Which one of us is the greatest? Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, and anything you say, they'll instantly respond with a similar story that's just a little bit better? I call those people the one-uppers. And I recognize them very clearly. I, give a, I, I share a story. And so, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when that happened to me, it was even better. You know, you might, you might, it's like they turn every conversation into a competition. Yeah, my kid just learned to walk last week. I got to see him take his first steps. Oh, yeah? Well, when my kid was that age, he was already doing basic algebra and uh, playing the piano. So, that sort of thing. I used to take my kids to a, a, a co-op. And I would stand there in the hallway, and I would listen to the mothers talk to each other. But they weren't really talking with each other. They were comparing their kids, and they were kind of one-upping what their kids did that previous week. You can imagine how the disciples, what the conversation was like between them. Because they already know. They're already special. They've been set apart. They're following the Messiah. And because they're the part of the Messiah's followers, fame... And glory are sure to follow. So the only question is, they're already good, but which one of them would be the great one? And each one of them maybe is making a case. You know, Peter is saying, well, I mean, obviously, look at this. I, I, I got to walk on water. Did you guys do that? I, I did that. And James and John are like, hey, man, we got to go and see the transfiguration. That was, that was pretty awesome. And Judas is like, I get, Jesus trusted me with the money. That's pretty important. So they're arguing about this. Who's great? And they're using probably very worldly standards for that metric. And Jesus catches wind of this conversation. And he pulls them aside in Capernaum. And he, he asks them, what were you fighting about? And I love right here that they all clam up, right? That's a, that's a kid thing to do. Like, you're in trouble. Your parents call, what are you fighting about? Mm, I don't know. You know, they clam up. And they're kind of hoping that Jesus is just going to kind of drop it, right? That's, what, that's a kid's strategy. If you clam up, maybe mom and dad will just let you off with a warning or something. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus takes him to task, and he pulls this argument right out in the center because he wants to deal with this. He wants to deal with their addiction to themselves and get them past that so that they can be great ministers in his name. So once again, he turns the values of the world, the values of sinful people upside down, and he tells them in this teaching session, he says, He says, that to be great, they would have to choose to serve others. They would have to choose to be, deliberately be the last and make other people first. And because Jesus loves using object lessons as a teacher, he then pulls in a small kid into the middle of this teaching circle. Now, kids back then were taught never to interrupt the adults, never to disrupt them. And Jesus pulls one right into the middle and says, look at this child. Really look at them. Now, we may today coo and coddle and love our kids. and I mean, we're great. This church is awesome at that. Us as a society, pretty good with kids. We love kids. But back in antiquity, they didn't treat kids quite the same. Part of the reason of that was that the toddler and infant mortality rates were so high that there was a mentality that you just didn't get that attached to a kid before they could start proving that they were worth something. So until they were like five or six or seven years old and could start contributing to the family, a kid wasn't really worth that much. They weren't that special. They were really at the bottom of the social totem pole. But Jesus takes this kid here, and he puts him right in the middle and says, this kid, I want you. If you want to be great, you serve this child. You serve this child in my name. And they're looking at this kid who doesn't really amount to anything in that society. And Jesus says, if you serve this child, you will be serving me. That right there will make you great. What Jesus was trying to teach them is that their previous conception of what was great was all couched in sin. Their idea, the disciples' idea of what was great was towering over people, having power over people, having position over people. And Jesus said, no. No. If you're going to really be great, you deliberately choose to serve. Jesus said, I just told you on the road how I was going to serve humanity. Am I a great person? If you want to be great, you serve. And uh, the epistle of 3 John, it's very short. And if you read it, you might learn about a guy in the church named Diotrephes. I always mispronounce this guy. Diotrephes, Diotrephes. This guy, Diotrephes, was in the church, and John writes this about him. He says that Diotrephes loved to have preeminence among all the people in the church. He loved to be seen as the important guy in the church, the special guy, the guy everybody went to, everybody would look up to, and everybody would talk to. He was a guy who loved his position in the church. And John condemned him and said, "You don't be like Diotrephes. Don't be like him. Because church for Diotrephes was all about what it could do for him. He wasn't a servant. I want you to contrast that, and I'm going to get a little flack with this, I'm okay with it, with Pope Francis, the current pope. In 2013, journalists discovered that Pope Francis had a habit. He would put on normal priest garb. He would sneak out of the Vatican late at night, and he would go serve and minister to the homeless in Rome. And finally they caught on to it and somebody went, oh, that guy looks a little like Pope Francis. And they figured it out. Now you may, you may not like his policy, you may, not like, have it, you may have issues with the Catholic Church, but I want you to understand that for Francis, he had a genuine desire to serve in the name of Christ. And I respect that. So the question today is, are we a Diotrephes or are we a Francis? Is church about all what it can do for us and about raising us in a position of authority and glory, or is it about what we can do for other people in Christ's name, knowing that we're serving Christ as well? As the chapter continues, we see another problem with the disciples, that their desire to be great, their, their, their egos, have created this exclusive club which only had 12 members. If anyone wasn't part of their group, that person was not as good as the disciples, and they were even kind of excluded and put in their place. John is the one here we read about who has a severe problem. He gets into a little bit of a problem here because he actually goes and tattles on a guy to Jesus. Again, I I always draw comparisons between the disciples and my kids because sometimes they act very childish, and that's what John's doing here They tattle on a guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, this guy's ministry wasn't conflicting with Jesus. He wasn't um, going against Scripture. He wasn't holding the disciples back in any way. But still, the disciples did not like it. Why? Because the disciples felt that they should be the only ones who had this ability. They felt like they should be the only ones casting out uh, demons in Christ's name. They're being intolerant, they're being prideful, and they're probably just a little more than peeved that this guy is being successful at what they just failed at a week ago, right? We just talked about that. This us versus them mentality is one of the ugliest and most difficult issues that the church has ever had to deal with, and it still runs rampant today. We get very locked down in our denominations, going we're the good ones and all the rest are the bad ones. We have arguments about who is more right about the Bible and our styles of worship than we do recognizing and acclaiming those who are doing good work in the name of Christ. And when we do that, we become spiritually blind. It reminds me of a famous joke that goes kind of like this. I was walking along and I saw a guy who was sitting on the edge of a bridge and he was about ready to jump. And I said, don't do it. And he said, no, but he loves me. And I said, God loves you. He said, and and I asked him, I said, do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, are you a a Christian or a Jew? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, me too. Are you a Protestant or a Catholic? He said, I'm a a Protestant. He said, me too. What, What denomination are you with? He said, I'm a Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. And I said, die, heretic! And I pushed him off the bridge. The point of this, I heard that one a long time ago, The point of this is that so often we as Christians are so close together in what we're about as the body of Christ, and yet we raise these walls of division between us. Great people seek to include others. Great Christians look to unify, not divide, the body of Christ. And sure, we have our essentials, and those are good, and on those we stand firm. Jesus tells the disciples in this passage that whoever is not for us is against us us, and and the converse is true there. That if somebody is preaching against the Word of God, if a a body of people are not um, holding to the true essentials of Christianity and they're promoting heresy, then no, we should not fellowship with them. But, if somebody agrees with the essentials of faith that we do, and maybe not the non-essentials that you or I may follow, styles of worship, specifics of doctrine, then we must include them and we must treat them with grace, love, and humility. And that's hard for a pastor to sometimes say because we do get entrenched in our denominational lines. But great people choose to accept and include people who essentially minister in Jesus' name, even if they're not part of the exclusive club that is Knox Church, right? They're not a part of us. They're not great, right? But no, we need, to, we need to always be including those people because God's greats are unifiers, not dividers. Now, the final portion of today's passage is perhaps one of the most difficult to understand. I could get up here and give you an hour-long sermon. I will grace you and not do that. But I think it's important to see how Mark is identifying here three prideful problems that infect Christians. The first one, as we saw, was seeking great positions. The second was being exclusive. And the third here. Is mistreating others in the church. I want to say that again because I really want us to hear that. Mistreating others in the church. The issue here that Jesus calls out is when Christians have great experience or great position or great intellect are stomping all over what Jesus calls the little ones. He's not talking about kids. He's talking about newer or untrained Christians. Those who aren't as certain in their faith. And in so many heartbreaking ways, we in the church can drive these Christians away. We can tempt them into sin. That's one way to do it. Or we may teach them the wrong things. Or we may simply be cruel to them with our words and our actions. In extreme cases, we, we see this attitude arise in cult leaders and abusers and power mongers. And we may read this passage in Mark 9 and think that that applies to them. But to a lesser degree, I think it's rampant and most every church that's out there, that we're stepping all over the little ones, and we're pushing them away from the grace of God. church, we had a guy named Jeffrey. I love Jeffrey. Jeffrey would come, and he'd sit about third pew from the back. And Jeffrey came from a very charismatic background. And so he really loved to say, Amen! Anytime he felt the Spirit move him, anytime he agreed with something, and we had a very quiet church. So anytime that would happen, you'd see all these necks whoop, whip right around to Jeffrey. And he didn't care. He's worshiping God. He loved God. But I found out, unfortunately too late, and our pastor found out too, that many people in the church were upset with him for disrupting their service, disrupting their worship. And they had angry, hurtful words with him. They said, if you're going to be in this service, you need to shut up. That's the words they told him. Is it any surprise that Jeffrey stopped coming to our church? We pushed him away from the love of God. And Jesus has such strong words in this bad. It's almost painful to read this preaching by Jesus. That he's using harsh words against those who consider themselves great doing this, them, this to the people who follow him. He used shocking hyperbole. He says, You know, it'll be better if you're drowned or better if you're disfigured than to lead people into sin or to push them away from me. He's warning the church of the danger of disruptive and abusive sin against weaker Christians. And yes, he's using very strong, shocking language to get their attention, but also to put them on the right path. A great Christian, he says, doesn't complain about others, doesn't use their superior knowledge of the Bible to make others feel inadequate or stupid and doesn't lead other people into sin. Instead, to be great, we must build people up. We must encourage them. We must wisely guide them. I had a conversation this past week where somebody came up to me in this church and said, this is a problem we have. Will you preach on it sometime? I said, it's a coincidence. We're talking about it on Sunday." Maybe it's not rampant. Maybe you haven't done it. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've felt it. But I want to let you know, Jesus takes this so seriously. If we as a church are going to band together, if we are going to be strong, if we are going to be effective ministers in his name, we need to cut it out when it comes to being cruel to other people, when it comes to being mean to how they're doing something slightly, maybe in the wrong way that we don't think that they should be doing it. Show grace. Show compassion. Don't point out people's faults and their sins don't serve to push people down. Build them up. We're all broken here. We all need the love of God. And I think we can be a strong church the more we take steps toward this. Jesus concludes this passage with a final command I would urge all of us to take to heart, especially if we have a desire to be great. He gives us a direct command to be at peace with one another. To choose that. The cool thing is, if we follow his directions in, the, in this whole scripture that we read, directions to be great, peace is a natural outcome of that. If we, a church that serves one another in love, a church that seeks unity and essentials, a church that builds one another up, that church will cultivate a very peaceful environment. And peace is something I think we all want to be part of. But that is something that we have to choose to do and choose to be, peaceful Christians. And we have to get over our addiction to ourselves in order to do that. We have to start seeing other people as other precious creations, created by Jesus and stamped with the very image of God, just the same as you or I. And once you can do that, you can love them and start treating them the right way, the way that Jesus... Ask you to treat them in this passage. That will make you a great person. Maybe the world will never see. Maybe they'll never acknowledge that you're a great person because you're doing these things. They don't matter. God matters. And He sees it. And He will give you your just reward. When you are that Christian who is great because you are serving each other, you're seeking always to unify the body of Christ and involve people and bring them in to help each other, build them up, and to be at peace with one another. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these are hard words, but they are good words. They are words that we need to hear. Please convict us, Lord, if we have been guilty of some of these sins that you have been addressing with the the disciples in this passage. Lord, if we are addicted to ourselves, if we have been mean to other people in the church, Exclusive. Lord, help us. Help us to see how you served and help us to serve as a mirror. Help us to love each other. Bring us together as a church. Help this church to stand as great men and women, not for our own egos and our own glory, but Lord, as a shining example of what you can do in this world. And all God's people said, Amen. Now receive the benediction. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.